raise a couple more to the revolution. We have only three words for you. Uh-oh. We're taking over. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of the Q Zero Theater Cast. This is your host, Artistic Director Dan Pelletier, here today with what just might be our greatest podcast ever. This discussion is one that I've been looking forward to having for a long time, and when I was able to line up this panel of guests, I was over the moon. We have some of New Hampshire's best directors around from all different areas of the state and types of theater, the best of the community, the best of the high-end semi-professional theater, and the best of academic theater. Don't want to, you know, give too much away. Want you all to enjoy this interview as much as possible. Now, I will say, right at the start of the interview, we were having some unfortunate audio issues between connections and microphones. We got it figured out once the interview started, so please do stick it out with the beginning where we're doing the introductions and getting to knowing everybody, where there might be some background noise and whatnot. Once we get into the meat of the interview, the distractions and unfortunate technical difficulties do go away. So I'm not going to ramble on any more. Let's throw it over to my past self. Please enjoy this roundtable discussion on directing. Thank you all for joining me for this roundtable on directing. So we'll start off by introducing to our listening audience everybody we have as part of our panel. So if you just want to say who you are and, uh, you know, a little bit on your background in theater, specifically focusing on directing, that'd be great. Hi, my name is Mike Wood. I've been directing for about 15 years in community theater, a lot longer in youth theater, all throughout southern New Hampshire mostly, and occasionally forays into Massachusetts. I'm Matt Cahoon. I'm the artistic director of Theater Kapow, which is a Manchester-based ensemble theater company. We were formed in 2008. I've done a lot of, obviously, a lot of directing with that company. Also, uh, some directing for the Winnipesaukee Playhouse, for uh, the Boston Playwrights Festival, and uh, a couple of shows with La Mama in New York. Hi, I'm David Kay, and... Uh started directing professionally as far back as like 1984. I'm going to say that rather than calculate the years because I can't even do that anymore. I've uh, served as artistic director for uh, a number of companies over the years. I've been on the faculty at the Department of Theater and Dance at the University of New Hampshire since 1996. So we've got a great wide variety of experiences, styles, and backgrounds. I'm going to start with literally the most Basic question. I ask this to every group that we've had on the podcast, and everybody always says that this is an impossible question to answer. But let's just start with the most basic. What does a director do? What is their primary function on a production in your mind? I steal it from John Lithgow, who said that in his experience, the best director was an objective outside eye, somebody who had the vision of the stage from the outside, from the audience's perspective and could provide actors with that, um, that insight, as too often actors are, are busy doing their work, which is within the scene, the director has the ability to then manipulate the audience perspective in a way. And I think that, that is, that's my number one job after you know things like show selection and casting and, and those kind of basic logistics. 
I really think the most important thing I do is take the role of the audience and make sure that the pieces that we're putting together uh, flow and work well. You know, uh, so, so everybody knows, so Dan actually took directing with me when he was at the University of New Hampshire. Mm. And one of the first things that uh, I do, I think it might be even the first class in directing. And we ask that very question and I, uh, together with the students, we start to compile a list. And I'd say that list probably ends up with having about 25 to 30 items on it. So, uh, so <laughs> I fully agree with what's been said so far. I think the one that maybe stands out the most to me is, and forgive me, the, I, I don't like the terminology I'm going to use right now because it sounds highfalutin and I don't mean it that way. But the director is the, is the master designer. And I mean master only in the sense that it's the person who's got to bring in all of the components together into a single form uh, that hopefully on some level communicates something to an audience that is intended to be communicated. Uh, so whether or not we're talking about the, the bringing in the tying up acting and the designers and the sound and the aesthetic and every aspect of it. Uh, but I think that that uh, kind of goes hand in hand in hand with, with, you know, Lots of other jobs, but that one's the one that kind of stands out to me right now. I want to provide a unifying vision for all the actors and everybody involved. I don't do it in an academic setting, and I always want to make sure it's a enjoyable time. That does give a good overview and a couple different perspectives on the director. And I think one thing I see a lot of people ask the question, next question would be, okay, so, you know, you've been hired to direct a show. Hopefully it's a show that you like. Uh, what's the first thing you do when you have a script for the show that you want to direct? A lot of it is just sitting with the script, thinking and thinking and thinking. I'm long, long, long before I delve too far or deep into it. So, yes, I like to really, and ideally, I like to have a lot of rumination time. And actually a lot of shower time. I don't know why, but like, you know, like I say, I have the greatest amount of clarity when I'm taking a shower. I don't know why this is. Uh, but I usually, like I said, after that time, I start to, I start to, you know, after I, you know, obviously start to dig in and research and, and take the play apart. You know, I, I've always said, you know, I kind of, you know, I see plays as sort of like machines or engines. And, you know, if you really want to understand how an engine works, you got to take the thing apart and put it back together again. And after you put it back together again, you really understand how the thing works. So that's really kind of where I start is I take it apart. I put it back together again, sort of theoretically. And then I spend a lot of time just ruminating and, and letting it live with me for a while. It varies. But the first thing I do is get the, read the script, of course. I try to visualize how it's going to look on the stage and how I do a set or ask for a set. Because I'm not a designer. And so I have to translate what I see with my limited ability as a designer. I definitely second what Mike said about being able to see it, being able to spend time with the script and see what, uh, what the possibilities are in terms of the physical setting of the piece. Costumes, props, set, uh, lighting even. Um, and then I, I, one thing that I do, which is quirky and I admit it up front, I always have a copy of Thornton Wilder's Our Town on me and I typically read Our Town before I direct a piece. Hmm. Um, and it has to do with Wilder's ability to conjure a world from nothing. And, uh, and it really actually helps to kind of center me in a space where you have not the benefit of set, lights, props or anything and starting the storytelling process from zero. And so people laugh at me when I say it, and then I usually reach into my bag and pull it out, and they go, oh my God, you're serious. <laughs> you're actually have our time with you. Uh, but it's, it's, um, 
It is something that I have started doing, and I've probably been doing it for three or four years now. That's so interesting. Mike, did, did you want to build off of that? It just occurred to me that was our, our basic difference. You guys all pick out the plays for your organization. But the IBEX directed a play with three weeks' notice tops. I think that'd be a great thing that we can you know, go into a little bit more detail in a little bit. We can talk about play selection and also the difference between when you do get to choose your piece versus, you know, Mike, a lot of you work primarily in the community theater realm where a lot of times the organization picks the play and then says who wants to direct it, which, you know, there are pros and cons to that and unique challenges. Does anybody else have any quirky things that they do on every production like Matt's Our Town? I It's not something I would do with that particular play. I, you know, uh, Our Town doesn't speak to me on that level, but I'm sure we all have our uh, rituals and wrong, traditions. Dan, you're just wrong. Uh, I, I, I've, I, I've, uh, I, I told this story before on the podcast. I watched, you know, I've seen a very well acted, directed, designed, put together production of our town, and I never need to do that again. It just, it wasn't for me. I have nothing bad to say about this production or about the play itself. It just didn't get my juices flowing but you know we can we can argue thornton wilder <laughs> off air what i love though about that idea is that um you know one of the things that's really tough to do i think as a director is to free yourself up from you know from, you know any other productions that you've seen uh or associated with that piece so i i really appreciate that because i think that's one of the hardest parts of of the beginning pr part of directing a play is getting all those other performances and productions out of your head. Um, and sometimes that's even might even be your own product. You know, you, you might be directing a play for a second time. Uh, that, that really is challenging to get that out. But, uh, you know, I, I really like that idea of starting from a, uh, you know, forcing yourself to start with that clean slate. It's a, it's a really lovely thought. Why don't we build off of that, David? Cause when we did our discussion on designing for theater, one of the topics that I, we enjoyed and got a lot of good feedback was just that dealing with other productions of the same show that you may have seen, as well as when you're directing a show, say, you know, a West Side Story or a Fiddler on the Roof that comes with you must recreate the original direction and choreography in the production contract chorus line or 42nd Street that has iconic looks and set pieces and things like that. I don't know if anyone wants to jump off. Like, how much do you look into other productions when you're directing for, like, iconography and things like that? And then how do you try to avoid both the trap of just recreating what somebody else did as well as not going too far in the other direction? Because I've definitely seen people that do that where they're just like, I never, I want to make sure that I'm doing nothing that anyone has ever done before. And sometimes they end up, you know, putting a huge... Uh, mess on stage just from the need to be different. I look at nothing. I, I look at zero things that have been done before and almost like I force myself not to look at what other people have done. I think the iconography is in this is in the text. I, you know, I remember doing Buried Childs, which was a show that I studied that my thesis was on. Um, then I got to direct for Kapow. And we were about probably two weeks into rehearsal and Dodge, the character of Dodge, just said, Tilden, Tilden. And I turned to my stage manager and it's like, holy crap, this is a production of Buried Child. Like, you know, it, it, the iconography is there because the script carries it, not 
not Jerome Robbins carries it or, or whatever. I have also worked as a designer with directors who have highlighted stage directions, uh, which uh, makes my skin crawl. So, um, so I think that there's a danger there. I will say to a fault, sometimes I avoid that, that research piece and that stage direction piece. And occasionally an actor will say to me, oh, it says that like, a, um, you know, somebody knocks off stage and I go, oh my God, I didn't even realize that was in the stage direction. So like, to me, it's block it all out, put the blinders on, direct your production of the show. And I also have the benefit of not directing musical theater, which tends to be <laughs> a little bit more iconoclastic, I suppose. So I, I get to have a little bit more leeway in terms of my own my own concept for the piece. Well, one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the things about musical theater, uh, I have to say is that because, you know, they're so conceptualized with multi-million dollar budgets and proscenium stages that if you have neither, <laughs> uh, it forces you to let go of whatever the hell was done before. You know, I, I, like one of the things that always sort of drives me a little bit crazy sometimes um, is when somebody says, oh, you know, oh, you want to do such and such, such a show? Well, you can't do that show because you need X, Y, and Z. And I, my feeling is like, why do I need X, Y, and Z? That's what they did when they did the production, but that doesn't mean we need it for our production. I absolutely agree that, you know, when you go through and, and my first meetings with designers, um, <clears throat> you know, there's going to, I said, I, 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 will I will start to see what I must have. Uh, which has nothing to do with any past productions. It's just that, you know, I sometimes think of it as like the mechanics of design. There's certain things that we simply have to have because the text demands it. But beyond that, uh, I work with nothing but hopefully images or sounds or anything that I can bring to a designer that gets to a deeper sense of how I approach a production. Because my job isn't to design the set. My job is to hopefully stimulate the creativity in the designers so that they'll create a great and wonderful and beautiful environment. I try to avoid it. I, I, I asked my actors to avoid it. Remember, really early on when I was start, first started directing, I was directing a full, full for love, Sam Shepard again. The guy who, um, my Eddie, went out and rented the movie. And I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't, no, please, God, no. Because it didn't help, it didn't help his performance at all. It didn't enhance his performance at all. It actually, you know, it pulled away what, what we ended up working on and working toward. Especially as I, I did go through a little phase where I was directing iconic shows, uh, like Cat Not Tin Roof and uh, uh, Glass Menagerie. And it's just like, yeah, people do have pre preconceived notions of what they expect and what they want. And uh, you end up battling that. So it, it tends to be a little frustrating. Yeah, definitely. I think with the when you know your Tennessee Williams, where he's like the one playwright where they tell you to not ignore the stage direction, or sometimes you'll get an audience member that was like, "Oh, that was a great production," but you didn't do what they did the last time I saw the show, and they've just it ingrained. Uh, Mike, I like that you mentioned, you know, like when an actor that goes and watches the movie. How do you deal with an actor that's maybe like either you know they watched the movie version and that's their picture and it might not be what you want or like they played the role before or they love the role how do you how have you gone about dealing with i don't know if this is something that you've you know had to like how do you deal with an actor that might have this very narrow preconceived notion that might not be what's in your production or your vision when we do our table work i try to get that try to get that guy out of your mind because he also went to uh the same time he went down to providence and saw another performance of full of from a group down there, I'm like, 
And uh, he was he was obsessed with that one because that guy could throw a rope. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was just like, so we just kind of work it, work it. Like, how, well, how is this? How Because that guy's character may not work with, you know, our May or our old man or um, our visitor. And mm. um, we got to, like, make this, make, make this our show as opposed to, you know, someone else's. You know, a lot of that also, I mean, is really on the director when you're when you're casting a production. You know, and I've been, I, I remember earlier in my career, you know, and you're unsure of yourself and... You know, again, you, you know, even if, uh, you know, not that I've ever sought out productions to see, but, you know, you've seen things or sometimes they just live in consciousness, you know, certain iconic characters and uh, and you get in your head that, oh, that's what that character needs to be. But then you start as you, as you start to dig into a script, you start to realize, no, wait a minute, <laughs> that char- that there's nothing in the text. This is that that's what that character is supposed to be. There's nothing that really supports it. It's just somebody famous played the character that way. So we start to think, oh, that's the body type for that character, or that's the nature of that character. So, um, you know, it really, it's really uh, indicative that the directors got to free themselves up um, of those both conscious and unconscious uh, sort of ways that these characters sometimes live in your mind. I'll never forget what I viewed as one of the best unintentional compliments I ever got was the first time I directed a show that was adjudicated for the New Hampshire Theater Awards. It was Into the Woods. And one of the reviewers that eviscerated me uh, claimed I stole all of my choices from the original Broadway production. And my response was, I was four years away from being born when this show was on Broadway. So thank you for saying that I have the same artistic instincts and taste as James Lapine. I must be doing something right because I never saw the original Broadway and I didn't look at the original Broadway when I was putting together this show. This is an interesting place for a director because it starts to it starts to wade into the actor's process, right? And I, I, I work with actors. I work with a company of actors pretty regularly, and they have very distinct trainings, right? So Peter, one of my performers, is a checkoff actor. Carrie, who does a lot of shows with us, obviously, is a, is a practical aesthetics person. And so, like, it's rare that I dabble in the actor's process, right? You let them do what they're going to do. I understand if you have that person, like Mike's describing, who's trying to just go gleam information off others, that may be unhealthy. Um, but I would say one of the key roles as a, of a director is to just question, to constantly be questioning, like, you know, uh, you did it that way. That was great. Could we try it another way? Could we try it this way? And just constantly be asking the question rather than uh, trying to push people somewhere. Because, yeah, because I'm a director, you're an actor, and, and you know how to do your job, and I know how to do my job, and uh, and never the twain shall meet in some ways. Let's kind of build off of that then. Matt, you started to talk about exactly like what you do in a rehearsal space. Can you build off a little bit more of that? You said, you know, big thing is asking questions and, you know, trying different things. But just talk to me a little bit more about, and I know it changes, you know, depending on where you are in the process, but like primarily like when you're in the thick of things, what do you, what is you, do you feel is your number one thing you're doing in a rehearsal space? say that that our process is a little different than maybe most only because theater kapow builds in an element of training into all of our processes and so um you know if we t- if we look at our our production of the penelope ad this fall we we did a read through like one does you know and a little bit of table work at the beginning and then we probably spent three weeks just training in the in the development process 
um, before we return to the script. So um, it's pretty it's pretty frequent practice with Kapow that we're working through uh, a, a theater creation process uh, before we're getting into things like blocking and um, I guess blocking. So and before we get into <laughs> kind of the mechanics of of the piece, we're getting into uh, training our actors and bringing our actors to one place uh, together. Um, and so for, I, I, I uh, studied quite a bit last summer with Tectonic in the in moment work. And so in this fall, we were working a lot with moment work and that takes a lot of time to bring the actors up to speed on that particular uh, technique. And then it was then transitioning into building a show using moment work. You can't build the show using moment work until you're all speaking with the same vocabulary. And so, um, so that was that's a critical piece of our process. And uh, and then when you when you get into it, for us, it's um, we always talk about building the skeleton and then throwing flesh on it. And so, um, I I build my skeleton quickly. We we block anywhere from 15 to 20 pages uh, per rehearsal and then come back, right? And then we have to put flesh on uh, as, as the show builds out. Um, and then in a, in a summer stock setting, that all gets really just crammed, right? Because I have 11 rehearsals from first rehearsal to first tech or actually first rehearsal to final tech. Um, and, and I have to do that whole process, but do it in 10 days. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's always interesting and uh, terrifying at the same time. But yeah, that's that's the thumbnail sketch of, of what I do. And I will say, because it's been mentioned so much, and I would be remiss if I didn't, design is such a huge part of what we do as a company. And so uh, design work and conversations with designers happen way before even actors touch touch the foot into the into the room. So. All wonderful things. And don't worry, Matt, uh, communicating with designers and other directorial team members is on the agenda for tonight. Mike, can you talk about what your process in the rehearsal space is like? That's the table work. We do a little bit of table work first. And we like to put the show right, right on its feet and start working on, working on blocking, working on interests, exits, to get a lot of the mechanical stuff out of the way and then help them develop the characters by also developing, but I don't want them to go there because I told them to go there. You know, as I asked, I've asked, asked an actor, so why'd you go over there? Like, well, you told me to. Mm. I know, why did your character go over there? <laughs> and um, and a lot of times, you know, I, I get a lot different, varying ranges of experience with, with, with the uh, groups I work with. Um, um, for, for the longest time, for several years, multiple productions, you know, it was always one of my, my shows where it was somebody's first time on stage, um, which is a great experience. It's also a little frightening experience sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I just like to, you know, I want that to be a rewarding experience for them, too, and not something they like. Oh, God, I survived that show. I think we've all survived shows more often than we care to admit. David, can you uh, share with the good people a little bit about your in-rehearsal room process? Very much like both Mike and Matt, you know, um, um, you know every every production is approached differently. And uh, similar to Matt, you know, if, you know, if I'm if I'm directing Brecht, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time 
learning exactly what that means and how to train for that kind of a production first, or if I'm using viewpoints or if I'm using Chekhov or, you know, whatever it is that I feel might be the, you know, um, you know, the doorway that we want to walk through for this particular production. Not, not that one always has to do that. I mean, there are plays that are, you know, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we can sort of think of as a sort of a traditional approach. Like we're, maybe we're not going to do a specialized training for it. And there can be any number of reasons. It might be time or it might be just the demands of this piece just demands a lot of of time of, uh, it's just a, you know, I do the same thing. I, I get the structure up. And from there, we dig in and go as deep as we possibly can until we run out of time. So, uh, you know, but, you know, I do think that, you know, we talk, I've talked a lot of this to student directors is, though, that that from the very beginning, a director sets up what this, you know, what exactly is the environment that we're going to create under? We're going to we're going to set what our rehearsal process is like as a group as a as a, a group of collaborators um and we're going to set the tone so it, you know if i'm doing a commedia piece uh the tone is going to be very different than if i'm doing very child very probably <laughs> uh which is going to be different Hopefully. from you know a winter's tale versus midsummer night's dream so you know it's so part of that rehearsal process for me is is setting the tone and the mood and the atmosphere from which rehearsals will take place Matt and David, I know you both have directed for Summerstock and other things, so I kind of wanted to go into abbreviated process. I mean, the first time Matt and I worked together was when I was in Theater Kapow's 24-hour play festival, which, you know, you instantly learn what's actually important and what's not, and you go through, you know, the five stages of directing grief in eight hours. <laughs> so, like, when you're working on an abbreviated process, like, how does going from, like, you know, something that you're normally, you know, if you normally say it takes X number of hours to put a show up, what happens when you cut that in half or cut it down to less than a day or something like that? Like, where... What do you trade off? Like, where do you put your emphasis when you're on an abbreviated schedule? Um, how does that change things? For me, the, the glorious thing about Summerstock is, is those 10, 10, 8 to 10 hour days, right? So at the end of the day, while it may be fewer days of rehearsal, it's often not that many fewer hours of rehearsal. And also, and, and when you factor in that, you know, we all know, I think, as directors, that the second hour of rehearsal is often more important than the first, right? It's that process of what, you know, Stanislavski says, getting, you know, getting the dirt off your shoes and getting into the rehearsal room is really important. And there's that transitional period. And so hour two is great. Hour three is great. Hour four is great. And so when you're in a, when you're in a summer stock situation, you frequently find that you're doing more productive rehearsal hours, uh, pretty early on in the process, which is really great. I'm definitely an oddball at, at Winnie because I still train with them and and the actors appreciate it quite a bit, uh, I would say generally, I can't speak for all of them, but most of them are, are former theater majors who've came, come out of academia and have, have done viewpoints, have done checkoff, have done this type of work and then go out into New York and they're working and they're just, it just becomes a grind. And so they actually really enjoy coming back and going back into process again. Um, and it it feels crazy to sometimes to Neil Pankhurst, the artistic director, and to the other directors on the staff that I would take a day or two and train the actors. But we always 
we we never have an issue getting the show to opening night, right? So it's uh, it's just a different process than they're used to. But I would say that that my process doesn't change. It just uh, it just shrinks the time, right? It shrinks the um, there is there is an inherent pressure. I'm just going to keep quoting people. What what Anne Bogart calls exquisite pressure, right? Um, the the issue of there's a show 10 days from now and that we haven't blocked a single thing is a very real thing uh and there's nothing like that writing the paper the night before it's due right so um <laughs> i i i enjoy that that aspect of of summer stock work i i guess the thing that i discovered the most from from many years of doing summer stock is is um you know it's it's the experiment it's the experimentation time that you lose and so what that I think what that equates is that it's like you, you still need just as much experimentation time for any other production. It's just that a lot more has to happen before you get to work with the actors so that when you actually get to that point, you're much you have to be much further ahead because you don't have the time to go back. You have to build more. You have to you have to make those choices build quickly. So it's not that I want to say that I come in less prepared when I have a longer amount of time. But I can give over more to the collaborative process when and when I'm and not that I want to say that I don't collaborate when I'm in a summer stock position, but we've got to make decisions quickly because we've got to build the play quickly. Absolutely true. I think that's a really great point, David. The um, you know, I and when I'm working with Kapow, it's not un, unusual for an actor to to walk across stage and go, there should be a door here, and then we put a door in the set. When you're working at Summerstock, that set has been approved. It's already <laughs> built before rehearsal. You know, they're like the, that wall has been built. You're not adding a door at that point. <laughs> so, um, there is that aspect of you better have your your ducks in a row before you walk into the rehearsal room, or you're or you're in trouble. Different directors work so differently, particularly with staging, getting a play up on its feet. Uh, you know, everything from you know directors that that you know, really let the actors take the lead, which again, if they're, if they're trained in viewpoints, if they're trained in any number of things, works really great. If they're not, or uh, like in, in Mike's situation where you've got a lot of different uh, ability levels and training levels, you know, I find that when I'm directing stock, I, the, the, I, this, we've got to get the bones up quickly so that we can have as much time as possible uh, to get to the meat, to, to, to take Matt's uh, uh, metaphors. So I really, my, my staging has to be, uh, you know, 80, I got to be shooting 80% from the floor when we put that thing on its feet, because I want to get to the, to the real stuff as soon as we possibly can. Let's take a step back from and go to the, the magical thing that happens before rehearsals and that's auditions. I find a lot of times when I actually personally start to explain to actors, like what, the process of a director, or at least in my brain, the uh, how I'm casting a show and what I'm actually looking for in an audition. A lot of times, they their mind is blown. They're like, "Oh, that's that's what you're you're trying to do." I'm like, "Yes, it's it's so much more complicated than just like this one, this one, this one, this one." Like, you know, it's it, there's a process, and I'm looking for specific things. And I know it changes show to show, but one of you wants to start off like in general. What is what are you looking for in an audition, and um, what like what is important to you, and how do you put together a cast? I love to see if they take direction during an audition, even if, like something I won't use for that character, or we won't use for that character later on. 
just seeing if I give them something that's a total 180 what they're doing to see if they um, will take that direction and go run, run run with it. A lot of times you give an actor direction during an audition and they'll take a minute, give, do the same, and do give you the exact same audition um, right out right after. It's like, come on, guys. And then uh, sometimes you'll see someone just do a 180. Do it's fun to watch. It's fun to play around during auditions. Mm. Um, I love cold reads. Um, I'm not a big fan of prepared monologues unless it's for a character who, you know, like I like I I made my my, my big daddies and cannot turn it up. I made made them all do monologues. Mm. Um, but I don't I don't always do monologues. Shakespeare I do one I do monologues. Let's let's stay on cold reads for a second. At the last audition I did with my students before we started, I made them all do the Pledge of Allegiance, and I told them that was to prove to me that they all could m- memorize something and that they all knew how to speak English. So I needed them to prove more than that in the audition. So like when someone's cold reading, you're not just looking for them to you know prove that they're literate. What are you looking for in a cold reading specifically? <laughs> I I want to see how they interact interact with other actors. You know how they handle the material, because when I did um, art for the um, Majestic a couple of years ago, um, there were people who literally could, couldn't really handle the language. You know, not the swearing, but the, you know, the phraseology and, you know, the sophisticated language. And um, sometimes there's people, sometimes that's a start, good starting point. Is that can they convincingly talk like these characters, especially when they're as erudite as some of those characters and, and art, artwork? And I just apparently not like I can't speak well at all, but um, <laughs> you know just just to uh, see how they how they handle the language and how they do. I, I, I say a couple of things that maybe I don't know maybe they're sort of dictums that I go by. One is is that I, I really think that it's in, encumbered that the director does everything possible so that the actor can do their best possible work. I've never understood directors that make auditioning a really miserable experience because you want the actors to do their best. So for me, anyway, um, depending on what that is, if you know, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not getting fooled by who's just the quickest on their feet. I'm looking for the person who's going to be the best for the role in the long haul. And that's not necessarily the person who can quickly pick up a script and make quick choices. I mean, that tells me something, too. But if I can give the actors more time with the script, if I can get them paired with scene partners and let them work for a while so that they're coming in and actually showing me what they can do, um, I feel like I'm much, much further ahead. I usually say, you know, it's the rare time you reach into the mud and you pull out a beautiful diamond ring with a beautiful cut. You're basically looking for diamonds in the rough. And so I think in addition to trying to make sure that I give the actors the best possibilities to do their best work, my next step is to is to be absolutely there and present so that when I see it, when it happens, I can see it. I can capture it. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, interestingly enough, first call when it's, if I'm seeing hundreds of actors, you know, I'm going to obviously be taking notes because I will just get everybody confused. When I'm into the callback part, though, I discover that I don't really take notes. Um, I, I, I put 100% of my intention on watching them. Uh, and because then when that person, when that diamond, when I, that diamond in the rough hits, uh, I just know it and I see it. And I can only see it if I'm 100% present during that audition. 
David, now I know why I do the same thing. I don't take notes during callbacks and then I sit there and someone's like, you did you just wrote down their names and like a yes and a no. And I'm like, I, I knew what I was looking for in the moment. Let's go put together that cast list. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the same things, you know, we, um, we, I would say we only run auditions maybe once every couple of years. And often with, with Theater Kapow, we're looking for, somebody to add to the company who who fulfills a need that we have um or you know we've picked a show that needs specific cast members that we don't have in the company but i would say generally because we're we're asked you know we're asked a lot like how can i do a kapow show when are you guys having auditions and um almost always our responses come to training you know we offer these open trainings on saturday mornings and they're two hours long and we can learn a lot more about an actor if they train with us for two hours, then if they are in the room for three minutes, right? So, and even better if they come to training multiple times and they come back and come back and come back. And that's really where the pool of our of our performers is drawn from very often. It's not a, an audition. It's, we know this person from training. We know that they're familiar with our vocabulary, that they work well with our, our people, that there's chemistry, whatever that is. And then we can pull them into a show. Um, when I do do auditions, I think a lot of what of what David said and, and what Dan, you echoed is important, which is that I often find that I'm like, I've got my notebook and I've got my forms. And then at the end of the night, I haven't written a damn thing down. And that's just because um, I think that instinct that David is speaking to is super important that like, you know it when you see it and, and writing something down isn't gonna make that any better. Uh, unless I would say, you know, I, as Dan knows, occasionally I'm doing high school stuff and I might have 65, five foot three brunette girls come through the door and I'm like, <laughs> I better write something down. Like, what was that girl wearing? Um, but, uh, but that's a different situation. I would say with, with, you know, with Kapow, we, we almost always do a monologue. We almost, and we always do a cold read and I would not, um, you know, with some, I think, I don't know, Dan or, or Mike, one of you kind of laughed about like, not just finding out if they're literate, but actually finding out if they're literate is super important, right? Mm -hmm. So like, can you negotiate the language? Like Mike said, like, can you, can you literally, do you have the the musculature and the ability with your instrument to wrap your your yourself around the words on the page is a really important thing. And you can learn that pretty quickly in a cold read. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, you know, so we do cold reads, we do monologues. The, my favorite thing about monologues is um, really usually has nothing to do with performance and preparation and almost always has to do with selection. And I'm like, oh my God, they picked that show. This is somebody I want to work with. Um, and so I would say that that's a super important, super important uh, aspect for me. I'd love to ask a question, Dan. Would you mind if I posed one? Of course, David. I'm just curious what everybody thinks about where we're heading with video submission auditions. I've done them before, and I think that there is benefits and drawbacks. I mean, first, you got to have an actor that knows how to frame themselves and is actually giving you something usable. Like right now, you know, I've got the, the three of you pretty much framed 
in like tight almost you know like school high middle school photo type thing and like you know sometimes that'll give you wampa and sometimes people are like other side of the room or like the high angle selfie so like there's that but i do find again like you know in theater we have you know everything's like one you do it once and it's over at least with like a video if it's not a live video you know i can sit there and i can watch it a couple of times and i've done that um more so with musicals i've found like being able to listen to something two or three times has been helpful for me in in a sense. So I think it, it can really come down to did the you know did the performer set themselves up right? Did they have the right equipment? Um, and then uh, you know, did they actually give me what they what I needed? And then sometimes there's you know a, a four or five. Okay, you sent me this to do this with the next video. Okay, do you know re- now read this scene from the script? Do you have anything else? Which you know, then what I would hope becomes goes from being a, an evening of auditions can become a week of auditions because I've got to get, you know, my callbacks become when can you make another video? I spend a good amount of my springs helping students with pre-screens for college auditions. And it's a I avoided the F word. It's a ridiculous <laughs> process. I think sincerity is super hard through the lens and and so I'll often talk to them about, you know, because a lot of the schools, this is, gets into some minutia, but a lot of the schools are really specific about how you framed, right? Like, so is it, you know, head and shoulders? Do they want to see full torso? Do they want to see full body? They're really specific about timing and all that and the slate and all that shit that doesn't matter at all. And so by the time, yeah, and then you get down to like, do do I have a decent camera on my phone and, and crazy stuff like that? So it's a reality that certainly I have to negotiate kind of from the other side, helping th- students through it. But there's a sincerity lack there that's really strong. And so I, I often just tell the students, like, you've got to do something to get called back. Right. Like that the video submit the importance of video submission is is to make the especially in a pre-screen is just to make the impression in whatever time you have to make a quick impression and to get them to go, ooh, like I should see that person in person. The goal should never be to get cast, I don't think. I mean, I don't I don't do commercial stuff or, or film. I don't think the goal should ever be to be cast from a video audition it should always be to be called back to an in-person situation so so you want to do what you can do to get yourself in the room i've definitely avoided video submissions i mean to the point where I, i've driven like someone told me they couldn't audition for a show because they're in tech week and i've actually driven to their theater and had a personal audition in the hallway just to avoid doing a video audition yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I wish we all had the luxury of that sometimes, being able to... I mean, who wouldn't love the director? I mean, I'm sure some people wouldn't love the director just showing up wherever you were and be audition for me. David, you, you know, teach in college. How does your process as a director change when you're working both... I mean, I think and there can be a difference with a student of yours as well as, you know, in an academic setting? Well, I think the, you know, the big advantage when I met UNH is that all the students are coming up through that training program and I've been training them. So, you know, we're, we're kind of all on the same page, even if, even if we're going to try something totally different and I'm going to introduce a training system for that production, they're all on board and working professionally, um, you know, as Matt was saying, is that you've got you, you may have actor A who's Meisner-based trained, and you might have actor B 
who's Chekhov trained and an actor C who for any number of reasons, maybe you didn't even want to cast, but you had to cast for any number of reasons. And that's the actor who just wants to come in, say the lines and leave. And, you know, and, and as a director, you've, you're having to navigate um, much, much more interestingly enough on the professional level uh, than, than one has to on the academic level. Now, when you are producing the main stage productions for the department, is that does that sometimes become an extension of the classroom or do you still view them as just productions? Like, have you ever do, or, you know, I don't want you to name names so some people might get weirded out. But like, do, do sometimes you go like I am going to cast actor A because I want them to learn something or actor B because they need this. You know, they've never played this type of role before. Or do you still cast pretty uh, traditionally? No, no, the, the, the productions are, are the laboratory for the classroom. So uh, definitely there are, you know, there, there are times when, um, you know, we might cast three or four productions all at one time. And uh, there might be the actor who's just the perfect actor for this role, but that, that student's done, has worked in that capacity or that type of role. And there's uh, an opportunity for them in a different production. Maybe it's not even a, a bigger role. It, maybe it's a step down in that sense, but it's really what that student needs to be working on right now. It's an area that they've not had a chance to grow in, or it's a challenge. There's a special challenge to it that they really need to face. So yeah, the, the, without a doubt, at least at UNH, the training is at the forefront. I like that. And uh, I hope if some of your students are listening that they uh, take that to heart, because I can definitely remember some uh, green room venting situations uh, over casting decisions where, you know, that probably was the reason why you went with B instead of A, because you had a lesson or A had already played the ingenue seven times. They didn't need an eighth ingenue on their resume or whatnot. I want to we're going to go back to something that Matt talked about a lot because he said, you know, design is very important to the pieces that he puts up at Theater Kapow. David, I know, depending on the, the piece that you're doing, design can either be the number one, can sometimes be the number one deciding factor on certain things. And Mike, I know you talked a lot about visuals. So when you are working with either, um, you know, a, one or two designers or if you are fortunate to have a full team of designers for every level how do you go about communicating your ideas to a designer and sharing responsibility to make sure that they still get to be an artist and they're not just trying to sketch the thing from your brain like what is that director designer relationship like for you let me start with kapow i'm really fortunate to have designers that i've worked with a number of times so i have uh Teva young has done our lights for i don't know eight years um and for every show for eight years so i don't have to uh we have a you know we have a shorthand with each other that is very much in sync and um aesthetically we are we just understand each other so there might be a thing or two like i'll say um i really want like i'll, I'll say to her i really want to make sure that the audience sees no stage lighting. It all has to look like it is all like all practical, right? So we're, we're going to do a piece in a living room where we're not going to see any stage lights. It's all going to be practicals. Um, or I might say, I really want, um, visually, I really want a, a bunch of um, bare light bulbs hanging from the sky or whatever it is. So so I can, I can sketch in some uh, desires, um, but for the most part, 
Like it drives her a little crazy, I think, because she'll come to me after a tech rehearsal and go, so any notes for me? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, you, <laughs> I, you know, you do you. Um, and that that's that's really important to me. But going going all the way back, you know, when we pick a show again, the company piece is a little bit uh, adds a layer to it. So Taba Taba's reading shows with us. Right. So she's helping in the in the show selection process and Carrie who does most of our scenic design is reading shows with us so it's not um it's it's never a surprise right they know they know the demands of the show and they're there at the at before the show's even picked uh almost immediately once we've picked our season uh we just create pinterest boards and just fill the crap out of them with anything and everything from you know, stills from films or photography that we've seen that we like, or we've just randomly fell across something on Facebook and it gets thrown in there. And I think that that starts to, um, you know, a lot of designers work with like vision boards or, um, or design boards and they start to look at textures and colors and things like that. And we use the Pinterest board very much that way that, um, you know, there's there's buried child i go back to it like we wanted light to come through the set so like there was a lot of broken light images that ended up in that pinterest board there was a lot of old weathered wood that ended up in that in that board um and all of that stuff then informed the process of the designers and it wasn't so much a a necessity for me to articulate like my vision for the show, because we had from day one been working in parallel with each other. Uh, in the in the professional world, things are crazy because uh, you suddenly have a whole team. You got like a shitload of people working with you, right? You've got like designers and assistant designers and costume people and assistant costume people. Um, and then the process of articulation becomes so much more important. You really have to be clear about what your what your vision of the show is um but again you know one probably the best scenic designer i've worked with is a guy named dan daly at um at winnie and he like he'll he he has said to me before and he means it lovingly like he believes his job is to make the job of the director easier um and so he'll he'll design a piece for me he'll storyboard a show, show out for me and be like here's a look i saw and he's he's like getting his hands into the piece. He's not just talking about I want your actors to perform in front of my beautiful structure. He's talking about how does my structure inform blocking, inform you know movement in this moment. And I think that that's um, God, that's a blessing when you have a designer who wants to work with you on that level and wants to, like he says, make the job of the director easier. I've worked with some really great designers and um, really creative people and been really lucky to work with them. Working with so many theater groups, you have different experiences with each, with each company. I learned to accept the word no on occasion. I would really like this to happen with lighting or this to happen. There's a show and I, I built in almost 150 light cues in the script and the lighting designer kind of laughed at me and like, now nah, I'll give you a half of that. And then I just have to, I, some, I've had to make some, the occasional sacrifice because there's sometimes there are realistic limitations of time and space hmm. and budget. 
almost everybody is working on a volunteer basis. Mm. And some, a lot of times they're using their own equipment. So sometimes it's like, okay, thank you. And, and then you move on. But I've, I've had some really good sets I've really been really proud of. Yeah. Again, right, when you're working with like a lot of volunteers, especially in the community setting, you know, the, the, the talent pool can be, is without trying to hurt anyone's feelings, it can be limited and you can have, you didn't get who you wanted. You got who was available that week, but we do still churn out a lot of quality work. I've been to plenty of shows in the area that you wouldn't believe. Um, you know, I've seen show, I've seen better lit shows with Folgers cans and light bulbs than I've seen with LEDs and moving heads or, you know, like an actual lighting board. David, what's your, uh, you know, process like when you're communicating to your designers? Well, I'll give you my utopian, which I <laughs> rarely get to do. <laughs> so my favorite, my favorite way to work, if I can, if I can actually get everybody to schedule this in is um, is to get the designers together. I like to choose like the eight kind of most important moments of the play and get a big sketch pad and say, okay, it doesn't matter whether you're the set designer, any designer can talk about any aspect of the design. But let's see if we can leave this meeting with a sense of what those eight moments look like. Um, and what I like about that is it gets the set designer thinking like a costume designer and the sound designer is thinking like a set designer and hopefully everybody thinking about, <laughs> and how does that work with the actors? Right. Um, and I said, it's, and we, we, I've done some variations with it with Pinterest and just, you know, sort of setting it up imagistically. Uh, but I, I really like that method. Um, I, 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 to me, I found that it's led to the most unified um, ultimate designs um, and I also found that it, 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 it really sort of set the seed of collaboration among the designers, which I think is, it's, it's very hard to keep going because the, just, you know, especially if they're professionals, <laughs> you know, they, they don't have a lot of time or even in the academic environment. I mean, they they got, they're, they're doing six, seven, eight designs. Um, and they, that's one of the reasons why you don't get utopia very often. They just don't have that amount of time to give me. Um, you know, the thing about a director is that like the production is our baby. Um, and for a set designer, they've got more babies out there that they're dealing with. So, uh, it's, it's, so it's really hard sometimes to get everybody to stay together and to think together collectively from the beginning of the process to the end. I, Hope we all get to live in that utopia someday, David. Hello, Q0 fans. Q0 business advisor and performer Jake Ranlett here, interrupting your regularly scheduled podcast to talk about Q0 sponsorship and membership. As I'm sure you know, theater is really expensive and we cannot survive on ticket sales alone, which is why we have these two awesome programs that not only allow Q0 to continue to revolutionize the performing arts scene in New Hampshire, but has incredible benefits for you as well. Sponsors get their name and logo in our playbill, on our posters, mentioned in our podcasts, listed on our press releases, and so much more. We go out of our way to make sure everyone knows about you and thanks you for helping make Q0 possible. We also have our membership program for individuals who want a little bit more bang for their buck 
and a lot more Q0 in their lives. We have 10 different levels of membership starting as low as $2 a month. Every level of membership comes with awesome perks, such as early access to the Q0 Theater cast, discounts on tickets and merchandise, exclusive behind-the-scenes video content, the ability to read our new works blog, and so much more. The more you give, the more you get. If you want to be a vital part of the Q0 revolution, head on over to cztheater.com and click the Support CZT link to become a sponsor or a member today. And now, back to the podcast. So my next couple of questions are a little bit more just kind of personal preference ending on a little bit more of I'm hoping a lighter note. Who knows with some of you guys, the directions we go with these things. But let's just start with like if you're I mean, you know, sometimes you are beholden to like Matt with Theater Kapow. You guys have a very specific mission or David, you know, like with UNH, there's you have to pick shows based off of your students sometime. But like, let's just say you're trying to pick your I'm giving you. Whatever theater you want, whatever budget you want, whatever actors you want, but I just want you to pick a play that you're going to really enjoy directing. What do you look for in that play and what sort of play or, you know, slash what sort of plays do you enjoy the most directing? I like small cast, single set interior dramas. What particular about them? Uh, I like to, like to have like, single set interior, you know, not a lot of set changes. Um, I like to have like, you know, like, four, five, six characters, you know, with intensive interaction and lots of time to develop character relationships. So your ideal playwright would be like a Tennessee Williams? Yeah. Um, or uh, David Auburn. Or, you know, like Proof was a great, one of my favorite plays that I, that I was able to direct. Matt and David, have you guys figured out your ideal or what you look for in a play, your ideal piece of uh, your ideal text? I'm a Gemini, so (laughs) it's impossible for me to answer that question, Dan. I I will tell you a very quick story. I just think it's apropos for the time right now of a play I really wanted to direct and I had to let it go. Um, Actually, it was on tap to be directed as part of the UNH uh, season coming up before the, le- the election, which is the play Row, uh, which is an amazing piece uh, about the R.V. Wade decision uh, taken, upon, taken by the, 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 the books written by the young lawyer, well, she was young at the time, who argued the case and the real, uh, and the woman who was Roe. And you, if you read these two books, it's kind of like, um, two, you, know, you, you know, when you read reviews by critics, uh, of a show, and you, you wonder whether or not these two critics actually went to the same play. That's <laughs> essentially that. Uh, but in this piece, uh, it really requires um, a minimum of three women of color. And I and they're v- really crucial roles. And I was too worried. I had no idea to know for sure in our casting pool if we would have the actors to do the play. There was a way that we could have gotten around it and slightly adapted the script, but that had all sorts of ethical problems attached to it. Yeah. And in and not to mention the fact that, you know, well, we wouldn't have done it without the 
playwright's permission anyway. But, you know, in, in the end, you know, we had to wrestle with is if, you know, is, is it better to have those voices there, even if we don't have the authentic voices to deliver them? Or do we say we don't have the authentic voices and now these voices aren't going to be heard at all? In the end, we felt we could go forward with a play and we pulled it off at the last second. I'm going to take David's tack and tell a story to answer that question. <laughs> um, we, we, were, we were doing um, uh, Strindberg's dream play. And um, there's a moment in the, in the piece where uh, there's a door that appears overhead and, and um, at, at the end of the show, the door has to be open. So we had, we had decided to suspend a door overhead and then we came to the moment in the script where that door had to open. And, um, and there was the physical challenge of how do we open the door? It's 10 feet or 12 feet above our heads. And we're sitting as a company and thinking about it. And um, and there's this thing that happens with Peter Josephson where like this oh. shiver goes through him when he gets an idea and you can see it and he goes, oh, and he and like, you know, he's it's like the Holy Spirit jumps into his body. <laughs> he's got this great idea. Uh, and I go, oh, yes, Peter, what's the idea? And he goes, trained dove. And I you know, <laughs> and so we uh, we talk about it all the time. Like, what is this piece's trained dove moment? Like, what is the unanswerable piece of this show? that's gonna require this crazy ingenuity to, to solve. Um, and so I think that often when we're picking shows, those are the types of things, um, you know, the, the show Penelope, uh, which I've been watching a lot of video of recently with, um, with Neil Blaylock, Blaylock's passing, cause he was in that show for us. But um, he, that script for the first like, nine tenths of it is is no big deal it's like guys and speedos talking in a drained out swimming pool hard but not impossible in the last 10 pages he has this crazy dumb show that like reenacts all of human history and at the end of that a barbecue grill bursts into flames right <laughs> and um and for the first 90 percent, i was like oh i like this play and then by the time i got to the last 10 percent, i i turned to my wife and said we have to do this play right <laughs> like we have to figure out how to answer this problem how do we make a, a barbecue grill burst into flames in a theater that won't allow open flame how do we do this crazy how do we reenact uh with humor the assassination of jfk um, like, so these, these really, really difficult questions. And the other thing I'll layer onto that for me, which is, um, how can I, uh, mess with audience configuration, right? So that, I think if there's a hallmark of Theater Kapow's work, it's usually like the audience has no freaking clue where they're going to be sitting when they come up into the theater, right? So, um, you know, if we're, can I throw it into the round? Can it be in the round for act one and then in three quarter thrust in act two, can I, do this theater in the L thing that we do or traverse. Um, and we're, we're constantly trying to play with that uh, audience perspective and how does that audience perspective uh, lend um, something to the, to the piece. So trained dove moments, messing with audience perspective. That's the script I want. Matt, I, I, call, I call it getting Sarah ruled. 
Oh well, yeah, of course. Yeah, that magical realism. Of, I mean, my God, like Sarah we're going Rose. great. We're going. Ah, man, we got Sarah ruled. How yeah. are we going to make a house fly over the stage now? Yeah. <laughs> she has a she has a great uh, stage direction in. Well, she has a great stage direction in Dead Man's Cell Phone, where it rains, where it rains raspberries, right? But she has right. a great a great stage direction in Melancholy Play, which I directed, where uh, a a woman rides on a door and flies out a window, and then she <laughs> says something, uh, or perhaps just makes a long cross. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and I, I love Sarah. I mean, I read Sarah Rule's stage directions because she's freaking brilliant. But yeah, that's a that's a good analogy. The, the only thing that gets me mad at those points is that it, it, it is a little effort for the playwright to write the line yeah. <laughs> in, a, in, in a single sentence that, yes, might have been a brilliant thought, but is nothing to put on paper, but causes pure hell to yeah. the production company. Chuck, mm. Yeah, Chuck Meese, too. Char, the Charles Meese stage directions yeah. sometimes, you're like, holy crap, how do I do that? <laughs> uh, yeah. But that's why they're fun, right? That's why we do them. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, my takeaways from the stories and both, you know, having seen your work and worked with the, both of you is like, uh, you know, David, I think you're definitely drawn towards shows that are going to spark societal conversations. And Matt, you're drawn to wanting to do the impossible, but never doing the impossible the same way twice. If, you know, if, if I can summarize your stories, to, if I'm putting inappropriate words in your mouth, please let me know but that's kind of what i got from both your little uh your stories so i'm glad i mean that's what we are right we're storytellers we don't we don't want just to read it in the textbook um so i guess i mean we kind of answered what do you enjoy most about directing and i think just from discussing um the types of shows that you like to do we can see where those lie but is there anything else you want to you know add on that about like your, your favorite thing about directing or your favorite part of the job I mean, I would add one thing just because you made me think of it when you said that. But um, I love shows that um, that started before the audience got there and continue after the audience leaves. And, you know, frequently I'm, I'll stage a prologue that's not scripted, not with text, obviously, but there'll be something. There'll be a sense for the audience. It's not rare in a Kapow show that when House opens, the actors are there. There's a sense that... Um, that this this uh, world existed before I walked into it, and it's going to continue to exist after I leave it. Um, and I think that that's an important part of engaging an audience that they they have that voyeuristic look into the lives of these people, but they don't necessarily get to see how that whole thing wraps up. Um, is is important to me. Mm. Uh, Mike, anything else? What, what anything else that you want to say about like what you really enjoy about directing? I love the. the collaboration with the actors i love it when um we all finish a show and you know a great production and we you know we all leave happy and um it's, it's, that's generally my goal is just to uh have a great experience and have everyone have a great experience and david anything else you know that really gets you up in the morning about directing well what gets me up in the morning is on the opposite side it's terrifying <laughs> um, you know i there's never been, you know, I don't, I've been, I've been doing this for, for decades now and there isn't a production that I've taken on where I haven't started thinking I have got no business directing this play. Um, and so I guess the enjoyment is, is overcoming that. Part of Q zero's mission is helping out those who are trying to get a start in the career 
in the arts, whether, you know, they're going into it in the professional sense or, you know, like if they just want to do it on the community level, but they need someone to take a chance on them. So I kind of have a, a two-parter question, both what is advice you would give to somebody looking to break into directing, as well as if you feel comfortable sharing a story about like a big mistake you made that made you go, I'll never do that again early in your career um, and like what you learned from it. For me personally, I'm so glad that I stage managed three or four shows before I directed. And, you know, yeah, I worked with a Kevin Riley and a Mark Furman, rest in peace, both of them, um, and learned from, you know, people who've been doing it for a long time before I just jumped in and tried to do it, and, you know, and kept and had, had that mentorship. Um, and, and I, th- and I, I've made mistakes. My, my biggest mistakes is, you know, I've casted, you know, I'd go back and get, recast a couple of shows and, you know, I a lot of regrets. Well, not a lot of regrets, but I have some shows that uh, I still go back 12 years, so 13 years, like, I didn't cast her, but I cast her. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, um, anytime Maria Berry auditioned for me, I didn't cast her. I always go back and say, I am an idiot. Uh, you know, and a couple of times over the years that's happened. Um, when, I directed, when I directed Jake's Women, um, I had the brilliant idea of um, casting Jake first and then bringing Jake into the second round auditions where I cast the women. Um, first time I directed the show, though, I allowed Jake to sit in and to the casting um, for the women. And uh, that was a mistake. Because <laughs> um, there's different agenda, different different things going on for an actor than director and production team. So um, I think you know if you if you do a casting committee, make sure it's some people that you can really, really, really trust. If you're not casting it solely on your own, we're in this nice place right now where with. With the players ring and the hat box, people can propose their own work, right? So um, I'm a big fan of do your work, you know, do the work you need to do and and stop hoping that somebody will come along with the perfect project for you, because I think that's uh, probably not going to happen. And they're probably not going to give you the chance, right? So uh, it sounds crazy. It sounds uh, like an 80s movie where the kids have a barn and they put on a show. But I do think that um, there's a script that speaks to you. There's a story you need to tell, then tell the story. Don't wait for somebody to give you a chance. I mean, it. the, the chances are the ones that you make for yourself in so many, so many instances. Um, and, you know, and if you insist, I guess, on working with other companies, then I'd say all that stuff Mike said, you know, Find a find a director you respect. Ask if you can be their right hand man for a production. Can you sit in the room? Can you, you know, whatever that is, that conversation piece is fine. Um, I guess I'd rather that you just get to work, man. Like, you know, you're not going to make those early career or early director mistakes until you actually are doing it. So, um, that that's maybe an ideal world too, but. You know, it, at this point in time with the hat box, with, with Players Ring, you know, I've got an idea I want to put on a show. If you can pay for the rights, 
you can do the show, right? So people are, you know, there's there's more opportunity perhaps than ever. And I think the mistake question is an is a is a super hard one <laughs> to to answer only because, and this is not I I it's hard because, um, because what I want to say is very Batman of me, right, Dan? I'll speak to your to your world, <laughs> but um, you know, we learn nothing from falling down, and we learn so much from getting up. So. I, you know, I hate, I hate talking about like the mistakes we made. I'd rather talk about the lessons we learned along the way. And those lessons are often things about, you know, like, uh, I was, I really wore myself to the ground because I wanted this giant set and to make that happen, it meant four all nighters or whatever, you know, like, so that, that stuff, but it, the word mistake is hitting me wrong, right? Because without that, uh, I didn't learn anything, right? So I, I, I guess that's such an obnoxious answer to a pretty easy question, but I'm going to stick to that answer, which is, <laughs> you know, we are, we are, uh, we are nothing if not for the scars that make us unique, right? So, uh, so in, I'm not going to ever look at one of those scars and say like, "Ooh, I really am sorry that you're there on my body." I think no, like you're, you've made me who I am. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, the first full production I directed out of college was a production of Bye Bye Birdie that everyone who's heard this story knows that I call it Bye Bye Sanity. And it was probably the most important show I directed to being the director I am today, just because my what not to do list is now like was 50 pages just from that one production. And I made all my mistakes or, you know, my learning moments at once and came out of it a better director. So like while it was going on, yes, Danielle held my head in the parking in the mulch bed while I cried. But after the fact, I'm, I'm really appreciative of everything I got from that show. Uh, David, I mean, you send every year anywhere from like, you know, eight to 16 directors off into the world. What advice do you give to them? You know, just to, to, to have on to what Matt would say, you know, Harold Clorman uh, from the group theater would sometimes refer to, you know, like, he, he'd love to talk about his failures. Uh, you know, because he, he, he said, you know, like, you know, like, you know, that's manure. He said, like, and if you want anything good to grow, if you know anything about farming, you can't do anything without fertilizer. So, <laughs> like, the manure is really important. You got to produce some crap if you want some good stuff to grow. So I, I've definitely lived by that. <laughs> so uh, I proudly own my manure, uh, right. of which I have mine. <laughs> well, thank you guys all. This has been incredible. It was, uh, you know, definitely my favorite podcast so far. I'm going to have a joy uh, chopping it up in post-production. But thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat. Um, I hope our listeners have enjoyed things and that you guys have enjoyed sharing your love for your craft. Thank you, Dan. Nice meeting you guys. What an incredible discussion. Thank you so much once again to David, Matt, Mike. You guys brought it. This was possibly... No, I'm going to go ahead and say this is my favorite podcast I've ever recorded. Just incredible discussion beginning to end. I hope we can get you guys all on in again in the near future and continue this discussion. This podcast is going to become required listening of all of the directors I hire here at Q0. Since this podcast was of super length, I just want to get through this next bit as quickly as possible. 
Head on over to our website to learn about auditions for Romeo and Juliet. And our auditions for Heathers will be posted shortly. We've already sent it out to everybody in our artist database. We'll be going public with the sign-up very shortly. I want to thank all of our sponsors, members, donors, everybody that gives us money and support. Loon Chocolate, Chef Sean Harris, NH Tunes, Greg Powers, Keller Williams, Creve Academy, Public Charter School, Soa Entertainment, Lori Pelletier, Alex Bezos. Thank you guys all so much for all that you do. If you would like Q0 to continue to thrive and be successful, please consider becoming a member or a sponsor today. We just want to make sure everybody knows we'll be taking the 4th of July week off uh, for some much-needed R&R and escape from the world. As you all know, the world is kind of a crazy place right now, so looking forward to getting away from it and getting out of town for the weekend. That's really all I have for today. So, once again, this is Artistic Director Dan Pelletier. Thank you for listening, and as we always say here on the Q-Zero Theatercast, support local theater and join the revolution. <laughs>